Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 10, the whole chapter. Psalm 24 reads, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, and who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray one more time. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we know that in the beginning, knowledge of your views, the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. I pray, Father, that you would use this word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, to um, help us to bow down so that we can be raised up in you. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us. May you help us uh, to focus on you. Would you forgive my sins, because they are many, and will we see Jesus in him only? In his name we pray. Amen. Terrified prison, shackled, not knowing if he would survive, was where Brother Zong was, who was and still is the Christian leader of an underground church in China. Brother Zong tells a story one day that he was leading uh, an evangelistic network of church leaders and youth leaders when the Public Safety Bureau of China broke in and imprisoned he and the leaders around him. They wanted to interrogate him and find out who was involved in this network, how deep this network runs, and they refused to turn over any names. So they started to interrogate him. Brothers on his leaders were brought into prison, and uh, the Chinese officials told him that there were going to be leaders of gangs in there that would be ready uh, to beat and abuse and to get this uh, information out of them because they would be rewarded for beating him. So Zong and his friends were terrified. They were brought into the jail cell, and he says that there were 16 inmates all standing up, lining up, waiting for them to come in, and they're all pounding their fists, staring at them, waiting for them to come in. They walk in absolutely terrified. Zong says he starts to pray, and the gang leader looks at him, and he says, what gang are you with? And he says, well, we're, we're Christians. He says, well, what drugs are you smuggling? What do you do to earn money? Who are you extorting? And he says, well, we don't do any of that. We're just worshipers of God. And he was kind of confused. He says, so you don't beat people up like this, not what you do to earn a living. And he said, no, we just worship God. And then the gang leader asked Song this question. He says, well, do you sing? Kind of caught off guard. Song was like, well, yeah, actually, I sing, my friends, we sing, that's how we worship. And he says, we'll start singing. Absolutely terrified. Zong looks to his right and left, and he just kind of starts 
kicking it off and singing, and he's weeping, and it's super awkward, but he starts to notice as he's singing, the gang leader starts to tear up himself. They started to have a worship service in the middle of this prison cell, and by the time he finished singing, the Holy Spirit had moved in such a way that this gang leader was asking song about his faith and about the God that he worships, and why in the world he can be in prison and have so much joy. Day after day, for the next three years, during this imprisonment, through various tortures, uh, these cellmates hungered more and more and more to hear about the God that Brother Mom worships. What we experience in this story is how God interacts with us in worship. Their worship in this jail cell wasn't determined by their surroundings or by instruments, or by anything that was happening around them, but their worship was directed by God's very presence himself. And this begs us to ask this question coming out of Psalm 24, how does God reveal himself to us in worship? Two things. He reveals himself as powerful, and he reveals himself as present. Powerful and present. And we see God's power in verses 1 and 2. Look with me there. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, context makes this song really beautiful. And what I want you to do is kind of put a pin in some of this because it's going to come around later at the end. But Psalm 24 is very beautiful in looking forward towards Messiah. Psalm 24 is known as a praise psalm, and this psalm was sung on the first day of the week as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought up the hill into Jerusalem on the very first day of the week. Don't let that point pass it, okay? And if you remember the Ark of the Covenant from back in Exodus, it was given with exact instruction and detail for how to be built so that what could happen. So that God could manifest his presence and his power amongst his people. And this is where God's people encountered him in worship. What was the effect of that? Sacrifices were made. Right? If you needed to come close to that uh, Ark of the Covenant, sacrifices had to cover you to be close. And not only that, you needed to be bowed down in worship. And we see learning through this text that everything in all creation points to God's power. This psalm is reminding us that God is worthy of our worship because he is all-powerful. He has created everything, he sustains everything, and everything exists, even all of us, our heartbeats, our eyes, our bodily functions right now exist because God is allowing them. This understanding of God's power as we come to worship Him has a profound impact on how we worship in our lives. So how does this affect the praise? How does this affect our lives? Well, the first element in our worship services, if you look back at our what is called order of worship, is to do what? Is to recognize that God is powerful. To recognize that God is 
deserving of worship. And understanding us, understanding this correctly, helps us to worship Him. So what are we doing today? What do we do every Sunday when we come to church? We're all gathering together to recognize God's glory. We're all coming together to recognize through singing, through praying, through giving announcements, through uh, supporting ministries in Jacksonville and beyond, we're all recognizing that we do this because God is in control of everything, that He is powerful, that He is worthy of this. And the effect of recognizing God's power and control reminds us of what? That we're not in control. That we are not the center of the universe. That this world doesn't revolve in and around us because of us, but it exists and revolves because of God. Another way of saying this is that recognizing God's power dethrones us from our attempts to usurp God's power by removing God from the throne and sitting in his place. This is why we have order in our worship. You'll notice at the beginning of our worship service, what does Parker do? He calls us to worship. He reads scripture. He prays. Why? Because we don't regularly recognize God's power. It's hard for us to leave the distractions at that door and to bring them at the foot of God and to find ourselves needing bringing our burdens at the throne of the Lord finding his power and majesty. We're distracted. We're confused. We're thinking about lunch. We're thinking about things that are happening. The awkward encounters that we had out there that we forgot somebody's name and said something silly. We're replaying that in our heads the whole time, right? We need to be called to worship because it's not natural for us to worship anything but ourselves. What follows that call to worship? It's a confession of sin. And this helps us ask the question, how does our sin, day to day, cause us to seek the dethroning God? I like to call what I'm about to do the dethroning diagnostic tool. A diagnostic tool, think of your car and it's having a problem, you take it to the shop, they plug in the computer, then it pops up a bunch of codes that says what's wrong with that vehicle. We are going to do that for our hearts and souls with our dethroning diagnostic tool. We're going to go more subtle to more overt, but let's start on one end of the spectrum. Imagine, if you will, being home and you're living with somebody. I don't care what the relationship is, but you're living with somebody and you're having some quiet time, some much needed quiet time. You got your feet up, you're reading Magnolia Journal, and Jojo is going off on summer recipes for drinks placemats and paint schemes and ways that you can just have a phenomenal and beautiful summer. She is going off. And if y'all haven't seen some of her recipes, they're phenomenal. Right? You're sitting there reading and then somebody comes up and interrupts you. Let's just call it, I don't know, whatever it takes. Somebody comes up and just interrupts you. Hey, where's the cinnamon? Oh, um, well, the cinnamon is in the pantry on the door, second shelf down, you'll see it labeled cinnamon. All right, they storm off, you hear it walk off. You open up Magnolia Journal again, 
second shelf down, labeled cinnamon. You get back to reading. A few seconds later, you hear some noises. And then, hey, the cinnamon. I can't find the cinnamon. It's not there. At this point, the diagnostic tool starts to indicate I'm very upset at this point. I'm getting frustrated. You slam Jojo down. This is the day. This is the time that I needed to relax. And you walk off very spicily. You know, the spicy walk. You're just so mad. You just can't wait to find the cinnamon. And then you go open the pantry door, grab the cinnamon, look the person in the face, hold the cinnamon, and shake the cinnamon, and set it down. And then audibly or internally, probably internally, you start to question their IQ. You start to question their ability to follow basic human instructions. You are so frustrated, but why? This is, where does this come from? What you're saying in this moment is that my quiet time is more important than my relationship to you. My magazine time, my time with JoJo, what I am trying to do is more important than anything you could ever do. You are starting to war against my kingdom of peace. You are getting me off of my throne, and you are bothering the snot out of me, and I am so tired of having to deal with the cinnamon. Please leave me alone about the cinnamon. What this is is pride. This is just a subtle form of our pride making us think that our little mini kingdom can be disrupted by anyone or anything who we choose not to allow to be in that kingdom. Right? We are saying that my throne is so high and you are so unimportant to me that I'm going to choose to belittle you. I'm going to choose to get frustrated with you. And I'm going to choose to protect my kingdom and to slam that cinnamon down so hard that you never bother me during quiet time again. Now, we may all have some sort of derivative of that. I've, of course, never experienced that, nor do I read Joanna's Magnolia Journal online. Uh, it's a phenomenal magazine. But that's more of a subtle way that we seek to emulate God, where we are on the throne, where we can't be bothered and touched. Think about more overt ways we do this. Think about how quickly we can go from praising God on Sunday, walking out to the parking lot, our kids taking off, the car doesn't start, somebody throws up, somebody says something off-putting, and we go from praising God to, God, why today? Of all days, this has been a terrible week. Why are you doing this to me? How quickly we go from praise to grumbling to anger to bitterness to blame shifting when things don't go our way. How we refuse to take personal responsibility for the situations that we're in and leading by being the first repenters. You see, I can go on and on and on with all these ways, but all of these sinful interactions, all of this boils down to the sin of pride. And the heart of pride, left unchecked, will grow into this egotistical monster where people don't like to be around you, where people walk on eggshells around you, 
to always tell you what you want to hear, when you want to hear it. They never want to challenge anything you say because your ego is so fragile and so delicate, you can't take being wrong, being bothered, being misunderstood, or you just dysregulate and fly off the handle. Pride is ultimately saying, thus saith myself, versus thus saith the Lord. And we need that to be checked. There's a poet named William Woodsworth. He wrote in the 19th century this quote, Wisdom is oftentimes near when we stoop than when we soar. Let that sink in for a moment. Wisdom is oftentimes near when we stoop than when we soar, and this is what Psalm 24 does for us. It's helping us be in the rightful place to recognize God's glory, to have a reverence of God's power, and to have a respectful fear for the creator of all things who sustains us and who can, because he is able to, because he's sinless, zap sin completely. But he doesn't do that with us. And Proverbs 1 tells us what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And some translations will say the beginning of wisdom. Both translations get at the same thing. Even better for us, though, a right understanding of God's worship, of God's power, not only helps us in worship, but it helps us to love other people better. Notice the connection between worshiping God and how it works its way out in our lives in verses 3 and 4. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. You see, David is teaching us that our worship of God necessitates that we live in a right relationship with God and that we pursue right relationships with those around us, especially when it comes to living with other people who bear the name of Christ, particularly with those to your right or left that we're worshiping with right now. Paul even picks up on this refrain in 1 Corinthians 11, as he's teaching about communion, the Lord's Supper that we're going to take today. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that we need to discern the body. And that has multiple implications, but the two large implications is discern the body and blood of Jesus. Are, you, are we going to eat today recognizing that we don't deserve this? That Jesus died for us and we get to partake by faith? Do we discern that? But also, do we discern the relationships around us? Are we withholding forgiveness? Are we harboring bitterness and jealousy to those around us? If we are, we need to let that go. And this is what that table reminds us, that Jesus loves you so much, he died for you. And if he can forgive you, then that's the motivation for us to forgive other people. So, when we come to worship, we recognize God's power. And we recognize that worship isn't just about me and Jesus, it's about we and Jesus. It's a both and. We do both of these things simultaneously, and our hearts should be postured to submit to God in humble reliance and love. And the net effect of that worship is that it will come out of our hearts, overflow into our lives, into our hands, 
And we will start to bear the marks of Jesus more and more in our lives. Our integrity will grow. Our honesty will grow. Our love and charity will start to smell more like Jesus. And one story that highlights this beautiful is the story of Charles Moore. In 2006, Charles was a roofer and he was working paycheck to paycheck. Uh, he was working job to job. He was a day laborer. And in 2006, he got injured and lost his job, and he wasn't able to pay his bills. Soon after, Charles found himself living on the streets. And Charles would start to collect bottles to turn into a recycling center to get enough money uh, to have his normal provisions in his life. He was bridging until he could get to the next job by continuing to work. As he was digging through the trash cans, however, he found an envelope with a person's name on it. He opened it. And there was a stack of cash in there. Charles loved the Lord. He trusted God. In that moment, he could have played the pity part. He could have played, um, God, my life and life is so terrible. I'm searching through the trash. I found this stack of money. Thank you for this blessing. This is mine. I am going to be back on my feet. But he did. Charles found that note, he found the uh, envelope with the family's name on it. He goes and returns it to the family. The family is completely shocked. They were moved, they got uh, mixed in with some other things, and they just threw it away. They had no clue where that money was. He called every ounce of money was in it. The family ended up posting this online. It goes viral. There ended up being $20,000 in that envelope. If you're homeless, $20,000 is a lot of money. Let me tell you. So it goes viral and to bless Charles for his integrity, honesty, etc. They gave him a hundred dollars. The response online was, Are you serious? Twenty thousand? And all you can do is a hundred bucks? Are you kidding me? Everybody got super upset. They ended up starting some sort of like early version of GoFundMe. Uh gave Charles uh, some money, got some food. But a business owner heard about Charles's integrity and gave him a full-time job working with him. And so that $20,000 was replaced tenfold because Charles is still working today. He didn't need that $20,000. He did what was right, even when it cost him everything. He could have took the easy way out, but chose to do the right thing, even in the middle of these stories hit the way they did? Why do we resonate with this? Why did this story go viral? Well, doing what's right, even when it costs you something, resembles our Savior. It resembles the birth of Jesus. Think about the birth of Jesus. He was completely sinless, tried as a criminal for doing no wrong. He was betrayed by his friends. He was crucified, dead, and buried, betrayed by everyone, and at some point along the way, he could have said, nope, I'm not doing this, and he could have been justified in not doing that. But he chose to do that out of love for us. He chose to do that out of love for us. Jesus' pain brought us immeasurable blessing. And God's power was seen in Jesus, and he was the only one who could do that for sinners like us. And the good news about this is 
Jesus was the one with the ultimate clean hands and a pure heart that our text talks about. That Jesus, by his spirit, was working that clean hands and pure heart out in Charles' life. And Charles's worship of God brought blessing to him, far more than the money. Don't leave here thinking that Charles did what was right and got more than $20,000. Charles did what was right because he realized he had everything he needed in Jesus. So he was able to be open-handed with what he thought the world thought he would need. So Charles was very trusting in Jesus. And that's what true worshipers do. And this brings us back to our primary question. How does God reveal himself in worship? First, we've seen that God reveals himself as powerful, but then he reveals himself as present. And we see that in the verse, verses 7 through 10. What we see in these verses is the ultimate blessing that we get for worshiping God, and that's his presence with us. And God's presence is more important than anything we could ever get. And notice the refrain in this text. Look at verses 7. It says, Lift up your heads that the king of glory may come in. Verse 8, the king of glory. Lift up your heads. Uh, verse 9, the king of glory. Verse 10, the king of glory. All this king of glory language over and over. So that the king of glory can do what? Be with his people. And this is significant for all of us. Why? Good kings throughout history live with their people. They don't stay on high and make directives that don't affect them. Good kings live amongst their people and experience what they are going through. And think about God being all-powerful. He has all right in and of himself to absolutely squash sin. But he doesn't. God suits up in the person of Jesus and comes and dwells with us in the middle of our sin to come and save us. Now, let's go back to the original time of Psalm 24. Start thinking back on for a second. Psalm 24 was written in a time where the ark would have been present with David and God's people. And as David was writing this, as the people worshipped, they knew that this event, this psalm, this praise psalm, was always looking forward to the Messiah. It was always looking forward to something greater than the actual structure itself. It was always pointing towards a Messiah, fulfilling all of these shouts of praise, fulfilling all of this righteousness, fulfilling the time where God would come and dwell with his people. We have to ask, did that happen? Did Obviously, the Sunday school answer is yes, but we need to have proof. Now, if you remember at the beginning uh, of our time together, I mentioned that this psalm was sung on the first day of the week. Was our first day of the week? It's Sunday. All right, thinking caps back on. We're going to add some layers in here. So think about this. The priests were inside of the gates. Reciting Psalm 24 in this refrain of the gates open, open, that the King of Glory may come in. Now, imagine that scene, and then think to Matthew 21. As Jesus was ascending into Jerusalem, the people were shouting this Hosanna, the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, 
and the highest. So combine these two things together. Psalm 24, from inside of the gates, gates open that the King of Glory may come in. The people recognize Jesus going into Jerusalem on the donkey, shouting and praising Jesus, Hosanna in the highest. And Psalm 24 and Matthew 21 come alive together in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 24. And the people were cheering and praising and recognizing this. And this highlights the beauty not only of God's word, but the work of Jesus. And this should make our praise beautiful and rich and so thankful when we see the text. And I wish I could close the book and then go to communion and be done. But the story did end there. The story takes a really dark turn. Jesus comes in, people shouting praises. So thankful that he's there. And the same people shouting praises a few days later were cheering on his death and crucifixion and were spitting on him. And they were so thankful to be destroying this man who said he was God. Church, if that isn't the most realistic picture of our sin, I don't know what is. This is us. This is we are the people that on one side of our mouth can praise God for what he's done, and then life hits the fan in the other side of our mouth. We start screaming and shouting about God forgetting us, not loving us, not caring for us, letting our plans fail. And we put God on trial like we are on the throne. But Jesus knew his faith. Jesus knew who he was dying for. Jesus knew that the people that would kiss him and praise him would also shout for his crucifixion in church. The graphic as this is, every time we sin, we are in that crowd with one another. That speaks to myself and it's so painful to even think about. Every time we sin, we are the ones cheering the nails. Save yourself, Jesus. Every time we sin, that is us. But there's good news here. There's good news here. Jesus died for fickle people. Jesus dies for broken people. Jesus dies for people who are mixed with sin and righteousness. Jesus came to save the sick and the needy. And church, I say this all the time. Don't forget the only two institutions that exist for bad people in the world are prison and the church. It's because of this beautiful truth I'm about to tell you. Jesus entered earth's heavenly gates and this earthly gates to bring us from death to life to enter into his heavenly gates. If you don't remember anything from Psalm 24 but that, remember Jesus left the beautiful relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit that had existed for all eternity past to come and live amongst a fallen, broken people. He entered into our gates to bring us from death to life so that one day 
when we take our final breath here, we can stand before his gates and be brought in, not because of anything that we have ever done or will do, but because through faith, gifted to us, we're clothed in his righteousness. That's the good news. God's grace will save us. God's grace is in the process. Every time we hear the gospel, Every time we hear the good news that we're broken and forgiven, that we're sinners and saints, every time we hear the fact that God loves sinners, we are being transformed. Every time, having more and more clean hands and a pure heart. Brothers all knew about this. And this beautiful truth was able to help them in the middle of his prison cell. And one morning they were having a worship service and everybody in there was singing. And the guard busts in the door completely sick of it and says, who's leading this worship service? If somebody doesn't speak up, I'm going to punish all of them. Psalm stands up and says, it's me, I'm in charge. In front of everyone, they remove the garments, beating, handcuffing, and make him lay at an angle with his head against the wall with his feet shackled so that whenever his body would give out, he would just fall and slam his head to the floor. He did this over and over, so much so that the gang leaders in the room stood up and said, you know what, I'm actually doing that. And they stood up, they took the beating and laid with him until everyone else uh, caught on to this, and they all stood up, and then the jailer got super upset, walked away, never came back and bothered him again. Interestingly, during this event, there was another prisoner for the three years had watched all of this happen, had never trusted in Jesus until this event, and watching these gang leaders and these Christians come together to worship God, this man gave his life to Christ. And they all worshiped together until they were all free. What Psalm 24 teaches us is that your circumstances, the good, the bad, the ugly, no matter what you're going through right now, none of that dictates your worship. No matter where you are, God is powerful, God is present. And if you are in an emotional prison or a physical present, prison, God's power and presence transforms your circumstances to make it an area of worship for Him. This means despite the diagnosis, despite the job loss, despite the promotion, despite the good news, despite it all, when two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, trusting in Him, His Spirit is with you, and His power and His presence transforms not just you, but the situation that you're in, which allows you to lift your eyes off of your earthly gates to focus on the one to come, where you can continue to sing his praise over and over again until his end. Let's pray. Father, your power and presence is absolutely astonishing that someone like me. Father, being the chief of sinners, this text uh, has been a body signing me all week, and I'm thankful for it. But Father, would you help us all 
over our lives. Help us to realize that we are not in control. That, Lord, uh, you have ordained all things, and nothing happens to us that hasn't already passed through nail-pierced hands that are resurrected from the dead. Father, with your presence, be sweet and kind to us. Would you elevate our worship? Would you help us to look around and see that we have real reason for singing? Because the grave didn't contain you. Because you're preparing a place for us and one day you'll return. I pray, Father, as we eat uh, the elements that you laid before us, as we celebrate communion, as we celebrate your supper, would we celebrate the fact that we have lived lives this week that caused you to die and rise again. We get to eat and drink knowing that we're forgiven and we celebrate. Well, we recognize that we aren't here mourning a funeral, but celebrating new life.